everybody. Welcome to Trek in Time. This is the podcast that takes a look at Star Trek in order and in history. We're taking a look at all of Star Trek. Yes, all of Star Trek. (laughs) In order. We're still in early days, so we're in Enterprise, which is chronologically the earliest of the Star Trek universe. We're taking a look at each episode in chronological order, and we're also taking a look at the world that the episodes were originally broadcast in. So right now we're taking a look at the fall of 2002. You're wondering who's doing the looking and who's doing the talking. That's me. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some books for younger readers. With me is my brother, Matt. Matthew is the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How about you? I'm doing all right. Holding on. People who are watching us on YouTube, you'll notice something about my face. I've got a Band-Aid on my face. This is from a minor procedure I had done. I had a spot of cancer. I had the Mohs procedure, which is a way to get rid of that little bit of cancer, and I am recovering nicely. And previously, I was wearing a bandage that was about the size of my head. That bandage is gone. It's been replaced (laughs) now with a Band-Aid that is a normal size. And I'm feeling pretty good about the whole thing. So a tip of the hat to the doctors at Sloan Kettering and a tip of the hat to science and technology for being able to come up with a procedure like this that allows me to say the cancer is gone and my nose will be okay. Before we get into the newest episode that we're going to be talking about, and that episode is going to be the episode Minefield. Matt, do you want to talk to us about response from previous episodes? Going back to the... uh... (laughs) Lack of your visuals in the last episode. <laughs> we got a couple of fun comments. Love Sean's calm, soothing voice combined with the slideshow, which gets crazier and crazier over time. <laughs> and the other one, which was uh, from RoboTrap. That first one was from Mako. The second one's from RoboTrav. Absolutely love the Sean's slideshow. That was just the laugh I needed today. I remember when I yeah. was giving the files to our editor and I basically said, here's a whole bunch of photos. Have fun with it. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect when I got it back. I was laughing pretty hard watching that back. It was great. Yeah, it's uh, when Matt first suggested maybe some still photos in place of me looking like I was wearing a paper mache turtle shell, which is what it did feel like as well. I quickly went to my phone and found the most recent photos of myself and discovered that I take a lot of really bad photos of myself. So. I hope people enjoyed them. It's nice to hear that people enjoyed them and it makes me feel like, well, maybe I shouldn't even be on camera to begin with, but <laughs> well, there was one other comment I wanted to bring up, which was from Alex uh, Ginsburg. Um, mm-hmm. It was in reference to the last episodes of the show that we talked about, which was Carbon Creek. Um, to me, this episode hints at why T'Pol stuck on Enterprise. She disagrees with many things Captain Archer does, and yet she still tries to understand how to work together with humans. Because of this episode, I finally know how we invented Velcro. And he put a little smile. <laughs> I, 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 the first part of that I thought actually was a good interpretation, which was, yeah, the show felt, we talked about how it felt like unrelated to everything we had seen, but you can sort of tie it back to T'Pol specifically of why she seems to be more open to working with humans than the average Vulcan, because she has this in her history. And I do kind of like that thread. To me, it still wasn't strong enough. <laughs> of a thread but it's like i do like that interpretation i think that that thread is 
is far and away the best interpretation of that episode. And I think that the way you could pull it out more would have been for somebody at the beginning of the episode. You have the conversation start with you've been here a year. The previous Vulcan serving aboard a human ship only lasted 10 days. Somebody could have said to what do you attribute that? Somebody could mm-hmm. have said to her point blank, like, what do you think it is about you that that makes it work for you? And she could dither and not respond. And then the story takes place. And then mm-hmm. we understand. Yeah. It would have been nice to have a few dots to connect as opposed to like, oh, let me tell you about my great great grandmother. She went to Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> so as I mentioned before, this week we're going to be talking about the episode Minefield. And Matt, do you want to give us a quick synopsis? This one's straight out of Wikipedia. Folks, hold on for the details. In this science fiction television episode that aired on October 2002, that's half the description, by the way, the spaceship, the NX-01, is rocked by an explosion that the crew tries to deal with the situation. (laughs) That's right. Was that written by an AI? Like, did... (laughs) This is a science a fiction bit. television show. That <laughs> yes. I feel like an AI would actually look at this description and say, well, that doesn't say anything. No, that doesn't give you any real hint as to what happened. It's the spaceship, the Annex 01. The head and explosion. Week, yeah, there was an explosion <laughs> and the crew tries to deal with the situation. <laughs> I'm going to edit that down so that it's basically in this science fiction television episode. The spaceship, the NX-01, is rocked, and the crew tries to deal with the situation. And we'll just use that for every single episode from now on. Yes, that fits with every single episode. If you were to, off the cuff, come up with a better synopsis, Matt, what would you say this episode is about? The Enterprise wanders into a minefield that damages the ship, and the crew has to find a way out of it. I think that that comes... (laughs) Much closer to what actually happened in the episode. Although you failed to mention that the spaceship is the NX-01 Enterprise. I know I failed. I didn't say they rocked. Yeah, you didn't. They do rock. (laughs) They do rock. This episode aired on October 2nd, 2002. And it enjoyed viewership from 5.25 million viewers. Slightly up from the previous week. A little bit more than the beginning of the season, in fact, which was the second of a two-parter. So I somehow think that's reflective of, I don't know how viewers would have known that this is a better episode Mm -hmm. than pretty much the previous two. This is far and away, like this is a really strongly written episode, which is easy to see why when you find out that it was written by James Chaban. James Chabon is an American television writer and producer. He's worked in both capacities on The X-Files and The Lone Gunman, its spinoff, Star Trek Enterprise, Smallville, Supernatural, Legend of the Seeker, Breaking Bad, and The Vampire Diaries. In 1997,1997, he was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series for his work on The X-Files episode Memento Mori. He shared the nomination with co-writers Chris Carter, Frank Spotnitz, and Vince Gilligan. In 1998, Shaban shared a nomination for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Drama Series with the X-Files production team. And when Vince Gilligan started Breaking Bad, he pulled Shaban in to help write those episodes. So as soon as I saw his name 
mm-hmm. here on the episode, I started to rub my hands together like, oh, goody, okay, goody, this goody, is goody. Yeah. this is this is going to be in good hands. Yeah. And the episode was directed by James Contner, and he also directed the previous episode. So a little bit of continuity there. James Contner, though, did not direct these back to back. He directed the previous episode, which is the story of T'Pol's grandmother in Carbon Creek. That was actually filmed prior to the second part of the two-parter, which was the cliffhanger from season one. So the actors would have filmed Carbon Creek, then part two, and then this. So Mr. Contner would not have been just steamrolling episodes Mm -hmm. out like that. I, I don't know of a director who would be able to do that. So on October 2nd, 2002, what was the world like when this episode aired? Well, Matt, we were still struggling with a dilemma. That's right. It's the song Dilemma by Nelly featuring Kelly Rowland. We were still dancing along to that. Matt, I know you've got it on your playlist. It's on repeat. It's playing right now. I can hear it in the background. (laughs) The top movie this week was Sweet Home Alabama. That's right. It's another movie that Sean has forgotten completely. Mm Mm-hmm. And for anybody else who doesn't remember what it is, it was a 2002 American romantic comedy directed by Andy Tennant, starring Reese Witherspoon, Josh Lucas, Patrick Dempsey, Fred Ward, Mary Kay Place, Gene Smart, and Candace Bergen. It took in $35 million and replaced Rush Hour in the top movie at the beginning of September. On TV, people were still, believe it or not, tuning into Friends. I mean, what's up with that? It pulled in 28.9 million viewers, which is a 6 million viewer drop from the previous week. So clearly, Friends was in steep decline. I mean, it's only a matter of time before Enterprise takes over the number one spot, right, Matt? Exactly. It's going to be in a week. Week or two. There you go. Two tops. Two tops. And in the news from the New York Times, Powell says UN ought to hold up Iraq inspections. Hours after Iraq agreed with the United Nations officials that weapons inspectors could return in two weeks, Secretary of State Colin Powell said tonight that any search of Saddam Hussein's arsenals should be delayed until the Security Council approves a new, strong, tough resolution setting terms. We will not be satisfied with Iraqi half-truths or Iraqi compromises or Iraqi efforts to get us back into the same swamp that they took the United Nations into. In the past, Secretary Powell said, at a hastily caused news conference at the State Department as the Bush administration scrambled to salvage its push for a new United Nations resolution. This, of course, is part of the ongoing push-pull between the United States and Iraq at a time when we had quickly become convinced that Iraq was in some fashion involved in 9-11 at worst or at best was holding weapons of mass destruction and the ability to produce more. And it would not be long before the U.S. would be invading Iraq. So this episode, Minefield, my biggest complaint right out of the gate Mm -hmm. is that you have the opening teaser. This is at some point late April 2152. And Captain Archer is in his private mess. He is trying to have a get-to-know-you breakfast with Lieutenant Reed, and it does not go well. It doesn't go well, Matt, just because Reed is up does tight. not bring a lot to the table, literally. No. no. He, <laughs> he shows up with a data pad, 
he immediately is talking about work. He has to be invited to sit down and he answers every get to know you question with a one word answer. There's lots of yeses, no's, not interested. He's not the the one for small talk. No, he's he is man of business and that's all he cares to do. It was a painful scene to watch, but I thought it did a good job establishing the character dynamic right there. I thought it was pretty good for that, but it was very difficult to watch. <laughs> it is difficult to watch, especially for anybody who's been in a work environment with a boss. Yes. Yes. And felt that kind of tension of how do I get past this moment? Yes. I also thought it was a nice bit of writing in the sense that it picks up on threads that have been in previous episodes. We have seen Reed's parents in a communication with him uh, when they were trying to figure out what to do for Reed's birthday. What is his favorite food? And nobody knows anything about Reed, not even his parents. So this is consistent with that. I thought that this was a nice continuation of something that the moment Reed shows up at the door, I expected the breakfast to go just like this. It was like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Yeah. It also fits right into his, he's a man of service. Service above self is who he is. And so this is bringing that back right in this first scene. And then it gets stronger through the rest of the episode. Right. And the scene effectively comes to a blissful end when there's communication from the bridge interrupting the breakfast. Captain Archer is informed that the Enterprise has detected a seemingly uninhabited but Minara-class planet in its path, and he directs the ship to change course to visit the planet, and Reed and he will report to the bridge I get the sense that both Archer and Reed are breathing a sigh of relief that the breakfast has come to a halt in this manner. But this leads to my one and only complaint for this episode. The Enterprise is suddenly rocked by an explosion. There is severe collateral damage. There is a hole blasted in the side of the ship. We go through the opening credits. And when we come back, the title of the episode minefield Mm kind of gives away immediately what is going on yes it removes a bit of the of there's no mystery nice stress (laughs) of like what has happened i envisioned we would be looking at an episode where it would be was this an internal explosion was it external would we attacked is there somebody cloaked what is going on no the name of the episode minefield so it is discovered that they are in a minefield because their explosion had to come from outside and Archer smartly uses a technology that it was introduced in a previous episode, which is the sensors that are able to find cloaked ships for the Sulaban. This was introduced two episodes ago. So the second part of the seasonal cliffhanger. And when they lower the sensors to Paul says, these were meant to find Sulaban ships, but I'll see if I can't adjust the frequency that it works at. And they are in fact able to detect that there is another mine attached to the ship, but that they are in a minefield. It's a nice bit of Mayweather saying something has hit the outside of the ship. I really like the sequence where Mayweather says something has hit the outside of the ship and they show the exterior view. And And Archer knows the ship so well that he sees a shimmer of something as the the mind that is attaching itself has some sort of 
there's a system failure in the mind. So it actually reveals itself and it's, and it doesn't arm itself. And it's just like a little pimple on the side of the ship. And when they use the sensors to detect the minefield that they're in, they discovered that they are in it's, it literally it's a lot of mines. Like dozens of mines that are surrounding yeah. the ship with the mine that's attached to the side of the ship. It's, there is dialogue in this episode that does such a good job with revealing character Mm -hmm. in a way that previous episodes have gone out of their way through exposition to Mm -hmm. let characters tell you about themselves or tell you about other characters. Whereas this episode does a fantastic job of showing the characters and letting their actions speak for them. They've got this thing attached to the outside of the ship. Archer turns to Reed and says, what can we do here? And Reed's response is, this is a mine. Any attempt we make to remove it from the outside could potentially cause it to explode. You need somebody with ordnance training to go out there. I'm the obvious choice. He literally in that moment, in one breath says, there's one person who should do this. It's extremely dangerous. It should be me. Send me out there right now. Yep. Archer takes his advice immediately. Go get ready. He also, in that moment, Archer begins to look for alternative solutions to this. And this is through communication with Trip. Trip suggests, well, it might be possible that we could remove the plate, but we don't know what that could do to the mine. We also don't know how that would leave us vulnerable because immediately underneath that plate is a part of their the energy manifold system and, they their, keep talking and, about. Yeah. and leaving that exposed to space would potentially cause a, a catastrophic failure. All it would take would be something striking that part of the ship to potentially cause the ship to explode. That four minute sequence of conversation between the various members of the bridge, I thought did a remarkable job for showing Archer's command style, something they will talk about later in this episode. It becomes effectively the heart of the episode, becomes a conversation between Reed and Archer about what is military protocol, what is a command structure, and how yes. do you breed how do you breed an environment that can be responsive this to whole, this whole, unexpected events. This whole this whole episode is a kind of masterclass in how do you create tension and create a thriller and also do really good deep character exploration all at the same time there's not like this knee jerk of like you have a little bit of action and then you have 20 minutes of dialogue and then a little bit of action and a little bit of dialogue this entire episode was tense from the beginning to the end because they just kept ratching it up every step of the way and at the same time you're having these great little dialogue moments as they're trying to troubleshoot that are giving hints as to what motivates each character and it's fascinating it's really well done it's really well done it is also a testament to exactly what you described that I went into this episode knowing that Reed is in future episodes. Yes. But about halfway through, I actually thought, is Reed going to die in this episode? Well, it does such a good job yes. of setting up the stakes so high that as a viewer who knows the future, of the show, I still had a moment of nail biting, like 
I don't think he's going to make it out of this. Well, it, it, for me, it's like that hit the point where same thing in what's about to come up in the plot. There's a couple things that happen in quick succession in the next few minutes of the show that really just kind of ratchet things up to like 11 that are really, really cool. Yeah. So Archer has Tucker's plan as a backup. You work on the background, get that panel ready to be removed if we need to do that. But the main approach is going to be letting Reed do the work outside the ship, which leads to some very nice special effects and neat opportunities for the director to use camera angles that you don't normally get in Mm -hmm. the series, which really gives you a sense of scale and gives you a perspective on the ship that you don't normally see as Reed first suits up. And I think it's, there's a nice bit of consistency with the exosuit that he puts on in the way it lines up with future exosuits Mainly, I'm thinking of the Star Trek, the motion picture. Yes, it lines up. His suit is reflective of the design aesthetic of the original series crews exosuits. So I thought that was a nice uh, through line there. But when he exits the ship and you see the exterior and you see this little man walking on the outside of the hull and you see the nacelle in the distance and you get a sense of, okay. Now I see how big a person is compared to the size of the ship and camera angles that are putting the nacelle in the background that way. I thought it was beautifully shot, really neat, really neat camera work, uh, which is of course all CG. And thankfully it still looks like dated television level CG, but it's it's good. It's decent enough. It's not like the episode we had last season where there were aliens that were running in the hallways of the of the enterprise (laughs) that looked like they were cut and pasted onto the video this looks like you you can tell it's cg but it does make sense that this little man who's walking like a little robot across the surface of the ship is our own lieutenant reed he reaches the mine and begins to work on it. And as he's working on it, there is unfortunately uh, the the next stage of things being ratcheted up is the appearance of an alien vessel that decloaks behind the Enterprise. And the moment it decloaks, anybody who is a fan of Mm -hmm. Star Trek and knows other Star Trek history, and especially the original series, recognizes this is a Romulan vessel and the entire sequence follows the the logic of a Romulan approach to interaction with other species. Firing warning shots, making sure that your power is known by the other, trying to scare them away and using something as duplicitous as cloaked minds in order to protect a planet that you have claimed. Well, one, one thing I want to bring up about the Romulans is in the background of the writing of this episode, evidently it wasn't going to be the Romulans. It was going to be some just unknown species. And you mm-hmm. and I have complained in the past of how they seem to rely too much on previous, like, ooh, everybody wants to know a Klingon. It's like, like why are they treading the ground that we, they've already tread? 
So they were originally not going to do it, but I think it was it, the, what I read was Braga had said, why don't we make those the Romulans? And the writer loved that idea and so brought mm-hmm. it in. And when this came up, my first reaction was the, the ship is trying to communicate with the Enterprise in, in a language that nobody knows. And my first reaction was I was fuzzy on my memory of the timeline of Romulans and all that kind of stuff in the, in the lore of Star Trek. Why would T'Pol not recognize the language? Because Romulans and Vulcans came from the same background and they splintered. So wouldn't there be a commonality in their language at some point so that the language would sound familiar even if she didn't know it? She acts like she doesn't know anything. And I mm-hmm. looked it up again and Romulans revealed themselves to humans and Vulcans for the first time during, I think it was the original series, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So it's like, to me, there seems like there's a bit of a, a leap of logic there that's like how, because later they explore how the two were one. And it's like, how, how would you just forget? <laughs> there's an entire yeah, there's a bunch of species. There is a bunch of, it is, there was retconning later. Yeah. That would not mesh with what has ever been done with the original series or moving backwards in time like this does. They retconned the Romulans because of the episode Balance of Terror from the original series. Mm-hmm. That is the episode where there's a cat and mouse game between the Enterprise and a Romulan vessel. And the Romulans have the ability to cloak and far superior weapon where if they can get one solid shot on the Enterprise, it'll disable the Enterprise. The Enterprise has the advantage of speed and maneuverability. And the cat and mouse game between the two of them is going on while aboard the ship, a crewman whose family was impacted by a Romulan attack in the past is viewing everything with suspicion. And when they're able to see inside the alien vessel and see that the Romulans look like Vulcans, this crewman immediately begins to distrust Spock. And Mm -hmm. of course, the episode has to culminate with Spock saving the day, saving that crewman and managing to shoot the phasers at a time when it was able to disable the Romulan ship. That episode references back to the first contact opportunity between the humans and the Romulans was disastrous. They do not go into detail as Mm -hmm. to what it was that happened. So effectively, this episode became that opportunity to tell that story. Right. None of that, as you point out, meshes with the retconning later of, well, the reason they look like Vulcans is because they're cousins of ours, that there was a schism. They effectively do a yada, yada, yada about it to say there is a point in their common history where Romulans went off in opposition to the emerging Vulcan growth of repressive philosophy. And that the Romulans went off in their own direction and then became kind of a lost tribe. Right. So there's a little bit of a, of a yada, yada, yada things happened. But I do agree with you that there's, there would, there would potentially be something about commonality of language that should have struck her ear. But part of me is willing to run with that because if you, let's say you go to a section of the world where it's groups of people who live in relatively near proximity to each other. Wouldn't they all speak some sort of languages that would have a commonality to it? Say parts of India, parts of Africa, 
there are in fact splinter languages which do share common roots but are now separate and individual enough that there is no common understanding across the board so i think linguistics to to i think somebody who researched this could make an argument for if enough time had passed even with a mm-hmm. common tongue romulan's language might have evolved to a place where a vulcan might not recognize it but given statements of much later series about the relationship between vulcans and romulans Mm-hmm. It gets a little harder to accept that. And again, to play my own devil's advocate again, we do need to remember that those stories in which we hear people say, oh, the relationship between the Vulcans and the Romulans is this. Those stories are supposed to take place well after this. We're talking about hundreds True. of years in, the, in Enterprise's future. Spock and other Vulcans would say, oh, here's the relationship between these two people. The, the one so the, potentially we're talking about evidence that comes up much, much later. There is one other thing that came up that I didn't know about. Once again, in the timeline, Romulans at this point didn't have cloaking technology. And so the fact that they were cloaking in this episode, it's a little bit of the, the photons came out of the phaser bank kind of, you know, push my glasses up comment. Yeah. But the, what I found was that was actually retconned and explained away in a Star Trek book. They explained yeah. why this episode, why they had it. And it was explained that those were craft. They were like prototypes that we were mm-hmm. witnessing. And that there was actually a problem with their cloaking technology that made them dangerous and unstable. And so it took them a long time to work it out before they could roll it out to their entire fleet. Yeah. I thought it was There's really funny. also like, a reference. You had to explain yeah. it away in a book. <laughs> yeah. There's also a reference in, in uh, the later Star Trek stories in the original series where they refer to the fact that Romians have only gotten warp technology recently. So yeah. it's there's a bunch of things that take place within trying to do it this way, the way that they're managing to do it in, in these episodes. The writers do have to kind of ignore what has yeah. come before. And that always that's the difficulty of a prequel. And that's the difficulty of doing a series in the way that they've done it here is to say we are effectively potentially going to be undermining what came before unless we completely restrict ourselves from ever touching what came before. So the moment you see a Klingon, the moment you hear the word Romulan, the moment you see a bird of prey, any of that starts to get. Well, the thing that it does is like it raises the question of like, why would they have done that? Why did the writer get so excited to include Romulans at the suggestion? And my only thought was it was they were using it as a shorthand to ratchet the tension because as Star Trek fans, we know the Romulans are dangerous. And so it's like just by saying, oh, the Romulans, we immediately know, oh, crap, you don't want to screw around with these guys. So it's like where if they had just said it was a random Joe Schmo alien, it's like you could potentially think, oh, they can negotiate their way out of this. But if you say it's Romulans, you know they're not negotiating their way out of this. They have right. to get out of there. I agree with that. I also think that it it removes it's another aspect of the shorthand is that you don't have to have anybody on the ship say, well, I've scanned their ship and determined that their weapons are capable of blah, 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 blah. The moment it's like, oh, these are Romulans and you see the Romulans fire mm-hmm. right two above shots. the nacelle, yeah. two shots. And everybody on the Enterprise is like, well, they're they're not they're not screwing around. back. Like yeah. they're not screwing around. We as viewers know, oh, if those shots hit the Enterprise, they are going to do terrible damage. Yep. And so this is if every rule has an exception, 
this episode is the exception to my rule of they shouldn't keep going back to well-worn paths. Mm -hmm. I feel like in this instance, the use of the Romulans in this way was beautifully done. I love the moment that the ship came out of cloak. The moment you see the Romulan ship behind them, my excitement level went up and I was already having a great time watching this episode. Mm -hmm. So these warbirds arrive and they begin to strongly threaten the enterprise with hailing messages that don't make any sense. The universal translator can't get a hold of the language. Sato has a concussion. She's in sick bay. She's having to try and help through her concussion. And she's able to give just enough information to say, like, they want us to get out of here immediately. Sick bay, meanwhile, is also shown as being completely overwhelmed. The doctor I love the fact that the doctor through all this seems very stoically detached from everything that is going around him. And he is saying to somebody who has severe burns, like, oh, my leech is getting a workout today and (laughs) doing it all with a very pleasant (laughs) bedside manner that is born of how he just weathers any storm. And this is this is a moment where. Crewman Cutler who was portrayed in previous episodes by an actress who'd passed away, this would have been an episode where she would have been in. She would have been in sick bay with him. And I found myself missing her and, and mourning her a little bit again. So they're trying to piece together. How do we negotiate with the Romulans and have reached a point where they know it's, it's just not going to be possible. And while Reed is continuing to work on getting the mine detached, the, Enterprise is forced to try to use navigating thrusters only to get out of the minefield, which gives an opportunity for Ensign Mayweather to lift a scene directly out of Galaxy Quest, the 1999 movie, in which (laughs) Daryl Mitchell as Tommy pilots the ship in Galaxy Quest successfully through a minefield, literally even down to the controller that comes out of Mayweather's the joystick console, allowing him to use a joystick to fly. Even as I recognized in that moment, like, Oh, this is like galaxy quest, which at the time would have only been three years earlier. Yep. I think that, I think that you can't avoid this moment though. You have to have this moment. And I say that to point out, I thought it was fantastic that everybody on the ship is looking at this minefield with the Holy crap. How are we going to get out of this? And Mayweather is piloting them out. There's a shot showing the sweat on his brow as he is piloting the ship forward. And in response to nobody says, I see it. Yeah. As he is managing to avoid and sees the, the one window out of this minefield and manages to get them through it. Unfortunately, through these maneuvers, as everything is happening, there is a jostling that creates a reaction in the mine it had two of its three legs attached to the enterprise hull now the third leg manages to release and it releases directly through reed's leg pinning him to the side of the ship this is the this is the moment that i was referencing earlier where i was like they keep ratcheting it up and i actually started to fear for him the whole thing through his leg was so well done. My first reaction was, oh, God, that looks like that really hurts. Like it was just like, yeah. I was just like, oh, that looks brutal. And it was just like yeah. r- really honest, just 
gut reaction that it gives you in that moment that really does put him in jeopardy, even though, you know, he survives, <laughs> he's going to yeah. go on. But in yeah. the moment, you're still thinking like, ooh, ah, that looks awful. So it's really well done. And I thought it was also well done just from the perspective of how when that happens, how his suit responds, it goes through his leg and then you see a kind of toothpaste like gel ooze out of the the suit. The suit has obviously been built with a protective inner layer of this gel in order to seal up and maintain the vacuum. And it maintains the vacuum right around that leg which is on the inner part of his thigh, just about the midpoint of the leg. As I say this, I am touching that spot on my thigh and thinking, yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of flesh for something to shoot through bore its way through. <laughs> that would hurt. Uh, yeah, it would hurt. And Reed manages to say in with a lot more calm than I would have to report to Captain Archer. Yeah, I've got this thing going through my leg. I'm not going to be able to reach the panel immediately begins to discuss the option of releasing the plate and just leaving him behind. This leads to Archer joining Reed on the outside of the ship. Uh, Again, nice moment with Tucker and Mayweather inside the ship and Tucker saying to Ensign Mayweather, you did a fantastic job getting us through that minefield. You should take a break. And Mayweather saying, no, I'd rather stay at my post Mm -hmm. again. Character revealed through action, character revealed through their words and their deeds, as opposed to somebody saying, well, you know what Mayweather did after you piloted that ship out of that minefield? He stayed at his post. Yeah. A lot less exciting, a lot less revealing than seeing him with a sweat on his brow saying like, I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) So now we effectively have a long sequence, which is. Archer and Reed picking up the awkward breakfast conversation. Their conversation on the outside of the ship, as Reed is making the argument, you should be releasing the plate and letting me go with the mine so you can get the safety. Him making that argument while Archer is saying, that's not how this is going to play out. We have options to try and get you back inside the ship and release this mine safely. And we're going to do that by you walking me through the process. And Reed is successfully, for the most part, navigating Archer through this thing while they are making small talk at Archer's insistence. Archer says, it helps me focus. It keeps me calm. Talk to me. Talk to me. Answer my questions. The conversation, while never becoming, it doesn't grind to a halt, but it does become awkward in a very different way than the breakfast conversation because it starts to become brutally honest and Reed revealing to Archer your sense and style of command is not one that I I fully endorse but at You're the same a time too it's familiar it's in that conversation it gets it starts to get a little raw and honest and what I yeah. liked was Archer leaned into that because he's trying yeah. to keep he's trying to keep Reed alert and talking and so he leans into that awkward conversation and goes well critique me. What do you think about this? And he's in reads, giving him yeah. an honest assessment. And what I liked was Archer comes back with a, I don't want to say stomps him down, but basically comes back with yes, but here's why I do it this way. And right. like end a conversation. What's next? And then he's like giving these really honest, brutal assessments of the captain's style and how he runs yeah. the ship and the problems with it. And each one, Captain Archer is coming back with a pointed response as to 
in a very similar vein back to him of this is why I do it this way. I thought yeah. that was a really nice revealing difficult conversation between the two where you could tell it was resonating with Reed because he was being heard. Yes. And he was and he was it was being explained to him in a way of him wrapping his round, head around why Archer is the way Archer is, which I thought right. was a like we haven't seen this this is like the season two and we haven't seen any of this until this point it's like we've had 20 what is this 26 episodes or something at yes. this point it's mm-hmm. like this is the first time we're having conversations like this why did it take so long why couldn't have what was who's the writer on this what was his name again i'm blanking his name shaban shaban it's like why couldn't they have gotten shaban <laughs> first well, I, episode I think, three i think on the one hand it takes it takes a writer of yeah. his caliber to to bring some of that to the table i think it also takes the first season of any series unless it is something like breaking bad which is gestated as out of the gate a five-year plan like we are like i know what i'm doing in episode 100 because i've already laid out the story to that point and so when i put it all forward it's it's all been born as a single thing this series has in its first season such growing pains for reasons both inherent in every show and also specific to this show being born pre 9-11 and now being aired in a post 9-11 world where Mm -hmm. the goals of what the show thought it was going to be doing and how it was going to be doing it became dated by the time the show was airing and then stuff like this can only be born of a writer being able to go back and seeing what they've been doing, part of which is coming out of the performance style of Bacula. Without it being stated in previous episodes, I think Bacula's performance has largely bred the idea that he is a collaborative leader. Yeah. He brings an openness to his response to his crew. He brings an, a smile and a willingness to to hear you can compare that to the kind of swagger of a kirk or the officiousness of picard early in next generation or the semi-detached approach of janeway where there's a air of familiarity but it has a place But he has a performance style, which in the first season is kind of a, it might sound strange the way I put this. I'm reminded of Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz linking arms with the Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman and the Lion. And they're all kind of like running into the weird future together. Right. And I think Archer is a little bit of that energy of, yeah, this is going to be challenging and we're going to have to rely on each other and we're going to do it together. And kind of linking arms with everybody. And that kind of linking of arms is something that Reed does not agree with. And there's one of my favorite storylines of this episode is it hearkening back again to a bit that had to be in the story Bible when they first started putting these characters together about Reed's family being an old Navy, British Navy family Mm -hmm. and the lineage that he has. And he has a sense of propriety and place in the command structure that is born of that kind of regimented upbringing and his response to 
Archer seems born largely of a misplaced application of what that command structure should look like, but in an environment which is so new. They're going into space in this way for the first time. The Navy isn't the command structure that's going to work in that environment. No. And that's Archer's point is if I've got command officers who aren't willing to share their opinions with me, why do I have them? And Reed is looking for a little bit more top down. You make the call and then we fall in line. And the push and pull literally comes to a head when Reed is making the argument vehemently, you've got to let me go. You're holding on to me and you're going to sacrifice the entire ship. And he unplugs his oxygen from the back of his helmet. Well, the one the one line that I thought was really interesting was he said, "If you were a different, if you were a different kind of captain, you'd be letting me go." And that's before he starts doing that kind of thing. Captain yeah. Archer's like, "I'm not that kind of captain." It's like that's not what he does. That's not what he's about. Right. So, in a moment of trying to save the ship, this follows him having shared the story of an uncle of his who, in the navy, had sacrificed himself despite his own fear of drowning. He had an uncle who served in the Royal Navy and ended up drowning in a engine room in which he had locked himself in in order to keep a ship that was sinking afloat long enough to allow the rest of the crew to get the escape pods. So when Reed pulls his oxygen from his helmet, it's not, it doesn't seem melodramatic. It's no. following right in the footsteps of how the story has revealed his character up to this point. And Archer immediately responds by attaching his own oxygen supply to Reed, balancing out the two. When Reed comes to enough, he says, you know, I should bust you back down to crewman. This is, you've done something egregious at this point. They know that trying to cut through the legs of the mine are, is going to set it off. And in trying to disarm the mine, they reached a point where at the last step, where Reed was hoping that the arm, the, the mind would be completely disarmed and made harmless. There is some kind of fail safe deep within the infrastructure of the mine itself. So that as Archer is trying to hit that last point, the mine in fact comes online and begins to arm itself and will explode. If it's not deactivated again, they take it back one step. They know this mine is going to explode. If we do anything else to it, we can't disarm it from the outside. And if we cut the legs off, it will, it will arm itself. So they've reached the point where they have to detach the plate. But Archer still isn't willing to give up on Reed. And Archer goes back in and quickly discusses with Trip and to Paul how much of a blast could the doors from our shuttlecraft take. And here we enter into Indiana Jones and the refrigerator of <laughs> yeah. nuclear bombast <laughs> yes. territory. But they yes. had to get out of the situation somehow. I'm willing to say like, oh, okay, so they've got a couple of these doors and they're not looking to use them to protect themselves from the blast as much as maybe ride the wave of the blast. Yeah. The moment Archer goes inside and is like, get me those doors. We know what's coming. They are being threatened by the Romulan ships behind them. The looming destruction of the Enterprise from those ships is more pressing now than the mine. Well, 
And also at this point, they've now, the Universal Translator has figured out the language. And so they're getting the full messages from the Romulans. And the Romulans have said to them, we know that... <laughs> <laughs> we know, we know that, that you've been disconnecting plate. this plate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just disconnect the plate and get that get out of here. Stop spying on us. Uh, you have to leave right now. So they're like, yeah, the threat is now imminent. Yeah. So they follow that procedure, remove the plate. It floats free of the ship, and then when they've moved enough away from the ship that the ship can pilot itself out from underneath them, Archer cuts the leg in two spots. He and Reed at this point have a slight disagreement of how long will it take for this bomb to explode? Archer had asked him, how long do you think it was when I first accidentally activated the mine? How long do you think it was before I deactivated it? And Reed says 10 seconds. And Archer says, I think it was closer to 20. This is another beautiful moment that through their words, they're revealing character. Mm Mm-hmm. Reed is taking the very cautious approach. Don't assume it was anything more than 10 seconds. That would be the safest approach to assume it's an extremely short fuse. Archer carries with him a little bit of hope and optimism. Yeah. I think it was closer to 20. I don't, you know, 15, 20 possibly. Like I had a lifetime there to be able to, to deactivate that mine. Yeah. So in that moment, when the leg is cut, and Reed and Archer are able to separate themselves from the plate and they grab a hold of those doors and push themselves off. We don't see any of the riding of the explosion wave. We don't get that because that would be a level of, I, I, think, I wish, I wish they had silliness a little bit of, that would have been hard. I wish they had with a little bit of the slim pickens yell, the yeah, <laughs> <laughs> riding the wave, riding the bomb down. Yeah. yeah. We do get, some very nice tension though, right at the end as they are drifting and we don't see them, but we see inside the ship as DePaul and Trip are watching Mayweather try and get the ship angled the right way with the shuttle bay doors open to be able to effectively scoop the two of them up and then get to warp the moment that the shuttle bay doors are closed. And as they are doing that, the Romulan ships are closing in. It is the last moment. Mm-hmm. Extremely tense. A lot of fun. Cut to the inside of the shuttle bay where the two of them are literally lying on the floor, mm-hmm. having just been scooped up, lying on the floor, and now continuing their debate of, well, how, how much time that? do you think that was, was before it exploded? Was 20? it 10 seconds or was it 20? <laughs> And for a brief moment, I thought I should rewind this and see exactly how long it was. But then I realized that's not the point. No. The point is that they're having that debate because they made it. And in that moment, both of them are revealing, I get you a little bit better than I did before. And in Archer's, so, a and very Archer's nice comment, moment. Yeah. And Archer's comment to him of where Reed says, I think it was close to, I think it was 12 seconds or whatever he said it was. And Archer says, I'm not going to argue with you. And then there's this long pause where Reed looks like he's gotcha. And Archer's comment of it was, it was 20 seconds. It's like, he's basically saying some arguments over the official documentation is going to say 20 seconds. It was like, I just love that he's pulling the captain's weight of you can stop arguing about this now. Yeah. It's a beautiful moment that is born out of a tension filled scenario that is effectively just put two characters in extreme danger and don't have them talk about the danger as if it's 
the only part of them in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's let the danger illustrate who they are as characters. Enterprise has done that a number of different times with two person storylines like this. Mm-hmm. There's Trip and Archer trapped in the desert. Didn't do it so successfully. Trip and Reed trapped in a shuttlecraft, slowly freezing to death. Did it more effectively. But I think this one really yeah. seals itself as this one demonstrates top to bottom the best way to let character reveal itself through plot. And I think yeah. that it's it's beautifully done. Yeah, I agree. This was this is one of my favorite episodes in a while from the yeah. ones we've been watching in sequence. Um, it, it stands up. It still, you know, stands the test of time because I remember liking it when it was first aired. Watching it, I, I liked it just as much. It was a really tight, well done, well directed, well written, well acted episode. I thought it was very good. Yeah. So my question to the viewers is this. Up to this point, is there some other episode that has revealed character in a way that you think has done a better job than this? Or do you agree that this episode really has set a very high bar for what the show is capable of as far as putting characters on the screen, responding to danger, and through that, revealing who they are as people? Matt, next time we're going to be talking about Dead Stop. That was not me reciting a telegram. That's the name (laughs) of the episode. Any predictions? What will we be talking about in Dead Stop? I think it's going to be something where everybody just stops. Maybe everybody's dead. Could be. Or maybe it is a telegram. (laughs) Dead. Dead. Stop. Stop. (laughs) Before we sign off, Matt, is there anything you want to remind our audience about? What do you have going on? Uh, Just a lot of cool topics coming up on my uh, Undecided with Matt Farrell channel. Um, I'm going to be having a video coming up in the next few weeks. I'm not exactly sure when it's going to drop, but I'm going to be revisiting my Tesla Powerwall, how it's been going over the past year. And I've been participating in a virtual power plant system. And so there's going to be kind of a breakdown of what that's been like. Sounds good. As for me, you can check out my website, seanfarrell.com. You can also look for my books at any bookstore, which would include anything from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the way down to your local bookseller or your public library. You can check those out. You can find out what those titles are on my website and you can ask for them by name. Appreciate anybody who's interested in looking at those. As a reminder, you can visit trekintime.show and from there you can directly support the podcast. You can, of course, also through YouTube, subscribe, follow. If you have any comments or corrections, please reach out. You can find our contact information in the podcast notes. YouTube, you can comment directly below the video. As Matt pointed out, Romulan ships showing up with cloaks and warp technology kind of doesn't mesh with what we've been told previously. Is there anything that our listeners or viewers noticed about the retconning taking place in this episode that doesn't ever fully get explained? As much as I love the episode, I do find moments where I have to kind of like, la la la, I don't know what I already know. Yada, yada, yada. Please do remember to subscribe, to like the episode and share it widely with friends and strangers. And to come back next time, Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you later.